Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Well, along with the new year come our new themes, which we talked about in the last episode. Uh, the new year also brings the start of the uh, watch shows, uh, specifically SIHH. And uh, that's just finished up, I think. Is it wrapped up or is it actually still going on? It is all wrapped up. And this will actually be the last time for the foreseeable future that it will be kicking off here. So I'll be joining forces with Basil World next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I like the, what they're doing, actually. The two of them sort of sharing uh, a two-week period where they're doing back-to-back shows. I think that's uh, maybe a little bit easier for people who are going and traveling over to, to, to cover the shows. Although... As you uh, pointed out uh, when we were chatting yesterday, that might also break some of these uh, reporters as well. Uh, Two weeks of trade show might be a little bit much for everybody, but it'll be interesting to see how it works out. I know it would certainly be more appealing if I were going over to cover it because uh, trying to do one show in January and then another show, you know, a month later or whatever, would be uh, would be a little challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh. In step with last year, Omega sort of rained on the SIHH parade a little bit. Mm -hmm. Last year, they announced their Olympic watches a little bit prematurely, and they were very fine-looking timepieces, and the timing of their announcement coincided with the the beginning of, of SIHH. And again, this year, they dropped some very big news that they will be putting their Caliber 321 back into production so to speak. It was the the press tease was a, a little vague as to whether it will be a one-for-one one recreation. I'm not exactly sure what, what it's going to look like. He has all the photos. They were very clearly marked as being the, the vintage takes, uh, but I would not be surprised at all if it turns out that the parts will be interchangeable with the, the vintage pieces. Now, what's the big deal about the Omega 321? In my opinion, it's one of the the nicest chronograph calibers that uh, they've ever put into a wristwatch. Mm-hmm. But it was, at the time, rather expensive to produce compared to the caliber that came after it, which was the 861 followed by the 1861. And those are, by and large, the, the moonwatch movements. And uh, the 321 is the the movement that came just before the introduction of the 861. And the 321 is operated by a column wheel. So it's a column wheel chronograph. And this is very intricate wheel to machine, but that is essentially what controls the the start and the stop and the reset functions of the, the chronograph mechanism. Whereas in the 861, you have a the cam-operated chronograph, which is f- significantly easier to machine and mass-produce than the column wheel. Hmm. Now, these, the last time they appeared in a watch was back in the late 60s in the Speedmasters, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's going back quite a ways since uh, the, this movement has really been in any mass-produced Omegas. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see how it's received. Obviously, if it's going to be extremely expensive to produce again, it's going to be of limited interest to people just because the cost will be uh, will be high. But I suspect there'll always be some collectors out there who are interested in 
getting another watch that has that uh, classic movement in it. I think we've reached a point now with computer-aided machining that this is no longer, I would say, significantly more expensive to produce than the 861 Hmm. would have been. In fact, it's probably much less expensive than a lot of their other calibers like the 8500 to produce. Uh, It's quite trivial now with with modern machines. Hmm. So I think this piece will do very well in the market. And uh, what remains to be seen is uh, what's going to happen on the availability side of things, whether this is going to be as hard to get as uh, a stainless steel professional Rolex was this past year, or whether this is going to be more broadly available. And one thing I I would love to, to see them do with it um, I don't expect that they'll they'll do it with the initial piece that gets released because I believe it's going to be a, sort of an homage to an earlier piece. So I think they're going to be as close to one to one as possible. But I would really love to see them eventually migrate this caliber to having a free sprung balance wheel. Because if there's anything I would change about the the three twenty one, that that is pretty much the only thing that that I would alter. That's the, one of the only things I dislike about it. How many of their movements do they free spring? Effectively, anything with the uh, coaxial escapement in it has been free sprung the thing that I, I am most grateful to to daniels for in terms of omega is not bringing the coaxial escapement to the line but bringing free sprung balance wheels to the line because uh, that is when they they really began to take that seriously and we've seen that trickle out now through out pretty much all of the swatch group of brands from longines and, and ratto down through hamilton tiso and even the system 51 from swatch now has a free sprung balance in it hmm. So I would imagine that uh, if they are bringing this into full production, it will eventually come equipped with a free-sprung balance at some point in the future, which is exciting news. Yeah, that'll be interesting. So what are your overarching thoughts or feelings about SIHH 2019? I think unlike last year, my initial impressions of this year were pretty underwhelming. Uh, There weren't a lot of really interesting pieces that jumped out at me like last year. I think from a design point of view, the overall design of watches last year, I think was, was nicer than this year. I felt that there was a lot of sort of minor iteration on designs uh, and not necessarily people trying anything really new or, or interesting. So, you know, obviously we're going to talk about a couple of pieces that that did stand out for us for various reasons but uh, I, I found overall this year I think it was a little bit weaker than than it was last year and I was I was pretty underwhelmed as I was seeing pieces come across my my feed this this week and so yeah it, it's not it wasn't the most interesting year and there certainly are a couple of pieces that made me made me excited but if I were spending my own money I don't know that there is very much here this year that I would actually put my own money down on now, in terms of, of not really branching out or releasing anything new, how did the code eleven fifty nine hit for you from uh, Audemars Piguet? So I, I did see some photos of this earlier on in the week, and it, the overall design of this, I, I'm not a big fan of. The only thing that sort of intrigued me were the lugs. The lugs are an interesting shape, and they have sort of a skeletonized lug, I guess might be the best way to to describe it uh and that was that was an interesting design the only watches i've seen so far that have used a skeletonized lug like that were actually 3d printed cases now i don't think this one is 3d printed i I think those lugs are soldered on afterwards like they're machined and then soldered on afterwards 
but uh that was the only part of this design that i that i really liked and i think compared to the uh royal oak i think this is a pretty weak design compared to that no so the the lugs actually aren't soldered on they're not attached at the bottom which uh i would reiterate your your weak point on that one because physically uh when this is like these are made of gold yeah uh, so they you knock that hard enough and it's not going to, to stand up the way a royal oak would to any of that sort of abuse. Absolutely. And and when I say soldered on, I they they really are only soldered on at the top. The back side of it, the um the back of the case uh comes off and so the the lugs are not actually soldered to the back of the case. And so as you're right, those they are only soldered on at the front and so while I like them from a design point of view, like I like the visuals of them, I think the execution of it is suspect. And I suspect that these are not going to hold up very well. They're not going to handle abuse very well. No. They were somewhat reminiscent for me of the styling of the the pieces from Bremont, just in the way that that mm-hmm. swoops down and then you've got the, the triptych style case that, that they've got going on. So you got a, a similar sort of thing here, except on the, the Bremonts, they're not actually making that uh, appear to reattach to the case when in reality this isn't attaching at the case. And then, then uh, another company is Lind Verlin. They've got their, their Speedolite line that are also have skeletonized cases. And the, the trouble with these things too is they, they end up being dirt magnets and uh, yeah. you just collect all sorts of grime and grunge inside those cavities which is also not not the most pleasant and there's actually enough of a a space there where it, it meets the the case back that you can slip a, a piece of paper through so that as well is just going to attract all sorts of gunk and, and dirt and grime the other thing is i wouldn't be surprised if people catch fabric on that little space in between the lug and the back of the case uh, you know, as they're they're putting on a jacket or something, uh, catching something like a loose thread or, uh, as I said, a piece of fabric, I wouldn't be surprised if people get that caught on things. Yeah, fabric itself shouldn't be a problem, but definitely loose threads or wool sweaters, that sort of thing, you'd probably end up getting it all, all caught in there. Yeah, and then from a dial point of view, I think the dial is a little bit busy and not particularly well laid out. Like, I don't think it's particularly interesting. This was something that maybe was, I don't know if it was rushed or... If this is just the the style that they want to use, but it's not uh, not particularly inspiring for me, and I'm not sure that I would chill out for it. I I think I would rather go for a classic Royal Oak over over something like this. Yeah, they're hoping it will eventually account for for 25 percent of their their sales volume, and I can see where they did have room in their line to release a a more classic, so to speak, round from the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, appearance because it is octagonal around the middle there but at least appears to be around from the front i can see where there may be a segment of the market who's not as familiar with their their pieces or isn't particularly drawn to say they're the royal oak or other items in their collection i can see that the void they're trying to fulfill here but in, in my opinion this launch is a little bit premature um, not premature in the sense that um, they didn't need to fill this void. I, I think this this is an area where their line could branch out, or rather that th- their company could branch out with an, a new line targeting, uh, say, this demographic of, of buyer. But the 
execution to me feels like it just need a little bit more time to simmer or perhaps even not coming out with such a a broad line right out of the gate uh, to test this as a single piece on the market and and then branch out from there in a similar way to the way that the the Royal Oak and the Nautilus from Patek Philippe were originally launched back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. There's a, a single piece and the empire that has come from these pieces is built out and branched out from there. It didn't all come out in one shot. Now, that credit where credit's due, like, technically speaking, the movements in these pieces are impressive. And the the detailing on the cases is incredible and, and of an AP caliber level. Uh, but it, eh, not personally to my taste. If, if I yeah. absolutely had to pick one of them, uh, I, I, I'm somewhat charmed by the, the minute repeater. And having a, a sporty-looking minute repeater, I think, I think is neat. Uh, but the $300,000 or so price tag is uh, a little, little off-putting there. <laughs> yeah, I, the the minute repeater is certainly the most interesting of the of a lot of them. Uh, as you say, it's it's a little bit of a sporty look. It's uh, I like the the bluish dial, the blue black dial they've got on there. Uh, but again, the like the font that they've chosen, the typeface that they've chosen for this is not particularly exciting for me i i'm not sure what they were trying to go for with it i don't really like what they've done with the numbers and uh as you say the the price tag on this minute repeater definitely puts it out of my immediate buying range i'm not going to be purchasing one of these anytime soon and apparently the font came from a a 1940s minute repeater pocket watch that they made and um, that's where they they drew the the typography from uh, but to me it it speaks very strongly of the the Rolex Explorer style dials and one of the companies we talked a little bit about last year because of some of their crazier designs was uh Moser and they've uh they they tried to do a sort of an Apple Watch looking watch last year that I th- I think we discussed briefly and we were a little bit disappointed they didn't take some of the cues and go a little bit further with it. But this year they have an interesting rendition of that watch. And again, I, they've almost got it, but they didn't quite go far enough with it. You put this one in the show notes. What, are you, what did you think about this new Moser watch? They have a lot of gimmicks and, and stunts that I don't they really particularly do. like to discuss because I don't want to fall into their their trap of of just having these talking pieces so we'll blow right over their grass Uh, laden (laughs) piece that they announced as well uh but this this piece is um it's one of their swiss alp watches which are are a play on the apple watch and but again i I think they could have taken it a step further and actually have the crown offset the way the apple watch did and i think that uh, the the piece by till lauterman that we referred to well, some point last year, who actually took an Apple Watch case and custom designed a movement to operate mm. within it, uh, I think would would take it to another level still. And and with this piece, that uh, what essentially what they've done is they've made a watch with no hands on it. So much like the Apple Watch, most of the time it's just this dull black. Well, dull is the wrong word. Shiny black surface that doesn't light up until you actually look at it. So they've basically done the same thing, and you've got a minute repeater on it, so you can still tell the time. And very cleverly, they, they've also made it so that when you pull the 
crown out, there are five minute markers all around the edge. So as you turn the crown, you can get an approximation of, of how far you're, you're turning the, the hands, quote unquote, uh, to actually indicate the time. So you can get the time generally when they're about plus or minus five minutes fairly easily uh, and dial it in from there. But they also have a, a tourbillon in here and uh, that they have broken out a portion of the, the dial to be able to see that spinning away. But I, I think they should have just gone all in and made this a completely black front. I have to agree with that. I think the having the black the black surface there without anything on it is great. I think that's a, as you say, that's a good sort of twist on, on the Apple Watch and the fact that the Apple Watch isn't always lit up and, and showing anything. The tourbillon is interesting. I think they should have just put it on the back, made it visible through the back. Uh, I love the to the minute repeater on here i think that's a great way of of sort of turning this into a usable watch but i think yeah i think that dial they should have they should have gone all the way and and just done a, a pure black dial and done something interesting with that even maybe maybe try and get a hold of some vanta black or something like that and and make it a a true black black dial uh, i also find that the lugs and the strap on this are a little bit odd Maybe it's just the photography of the product, but I feel that they're a little bit too narrow and it maybe should have been a bit wider. Like it looks as though they've maybe gone for uh, maybe an 18 millimeter strap and maybe they should have gone for a 22. Uh, I'm not sure if they actually tell us what size the strap is for it, but it seems to me like the strap could be just a little bit wider to maybe balance out the, the watch case itself a bit better. Of course, having said all this, this is a, a unique piece. It's a one-off that they've created, so it's not as if this is uh, going into production anytime soon. I don't think. No, certainly not a mass production piece. But I think with the the strap, I think they're again playing to uh, the Apple Watch aesthetic a little bit there with the leather strap add-ons that they have for the the adapters there. And you can buy adapters for the Apple Watch from a lot of third parties for as cheap as like two or three dollars too that give a, a very similar aesthetic well and this is the problem is because this does look a lot like the cheap ones that you can buy to add onto your apple watch but they don't look like the ones that apple actually produced because the ones mm -hmm. that apple produced are much nicer than this in terms of the yeah. balance that they produce so yeah this is they've chosen to go for the cheap version of those leather straps for apple watches as opposed to the the legitimate ones that actually look better. And back to this being a, a one-off piece, which also very impressive about it that I found is that the gongs for the minute repeater are of a very unusual shape, and that is to accommodate this rectangular case. So normally you'd have essentially round gongs. Uh, these have uh, much different gongs, and I have not seen anything uh, quite like that uh, in a repeater before i think the, the closest i can really think of is a piece from jaune as far as unusual gongs go but uh, even his were were not quite uh, like this yeah the tuning these gongs must have been a nightmare with the weird shape that they are it uh, from what i've heard from people who've actually seen and heard the watch in person apparently the, it does sound quite nice but it must have been an absolute nightmare trying to get those gongs to sound right. Well, for the price, somebody could spend a whole year tuning those gongs. <laughs> uh, 
That is true. Do they do they give a price for this thing? I didn't see it on here. Yeah, I don't remember the exact price offhand, and it's not listed on their their site. I had no. heard it somewhere, but it is in the six figure range. Oh, I, I imagine it wouldn't be less than six figures. Yeah, a little more grounded and rooted in tradition. The Naissance du Montre Project Two is beginning to come to fruition, and uh, this time. Uh, it was an exercise underwritten by Urwerk. The previous Naissance du Montre project was a collaboration between Grubel Forzi, Philippe Duport, and a professor out of France whose last name I can't recall, but the first name is Michel. And uh, he essentially built uh, a watch from the, the ground up by hand, and then they had a series of 11 other pieces as well that were made with a little more help. Uh, from Grubel 4Z, and these were all sold off to help underwrite and perpetuate this mission that they have to safeguard and pass on these rare crafts and, and this knowledge that that is possessed by the older generation of watchmakers of, of how to do things uh, the old-fashioned way with hand tools and not depending on CAD and CAM and CNC machines to, to do everything for you because there's you have a very different appreciation for the craft and for the work and you have a very different understanding mm-hmm. of, of the craft too when you approach it from this angle and to be able to keep vintage pieces running and, and operating into perpetuity it's important to safeguard this knowledge and to not have a a graveyard full of secrets, uh, as mm-hmm. Philippe Dufour has so eloquently put it a number of times. Uh, so that this second iteration of this this project um, has two teachers as well, and uh, will also work for the, the R&D department at Erwerk, and they are essentially making uh, another watch from the ground up as well, and it's based on uh, another watch that they had created called the the Ocelon. And so this is the initial prototype, and then they've taken this and put an Urwerk spin on it, and they had the essentially a prototype movement and, and one of the Ocelon watches on display there at SIHH, as well as some renders of, of what this piece is going to look like once uh, it's all said and done. I was a big fan of this project when it first started uh, during the first one. Uh, the thing I was disappointed with was part of the original idea behind it was they were going to produce a series of videos showing the skills and talking about the actual skills involved in, in doing the work. And they did some of that, but they unfortunately they fell pretty short of it. Even their blog ended up being ignored for the most part. And unfortunately, I think they stopped posting mostly because people really weren't visiting it and so i i don't think there was a great job done in promoting what was happening and and promoting to people so they could see and watch what was happening uh, it is nice to see these this project continuing though i was a little concerned that maybe it was going to get dropped and that it was uh it was going to be ignored but i'm happy to see that it is continuing on and maybe we'll see something a little bit more in terms of uh, video behind this one uh, maybe we'll see a few more details in terms of the skills that uh, that are being passed on. Uh, I'm not sure. I do know that uh, Michelle, who was the maker 
behind the first one. Uh, I do know he's taken on some new students specifically with the understanding of teaching them these skills that he learned from this project. So that is nice to see. But of course, a single person trying to pass on knowledge to people individually and one-on-one is is difficult and you're never going to you know, reach a, a huge number of people like that. So it, it would be nice to see more of these skills actually being documented and, and put out into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michelle's last name is Boulanger. So I apologize to Michelle for drawing a blank on that a moment ago. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is encouraging to see that uh, he is back in teaching. And actually, a number of his students were also present at SIHH this year, showing off what they were up to. And uh, the duo behind Ocelon and the Naissance de Montre de project are Dominique Bousseur and Serrano Defante. Defante. I apologize, Serrano, uh, for for butchering your name uh, as well. Although uh, hopefully I didn't do as bad of a job as I did with Recep's name a couple months back. It's also interesting to see uh, the folks at uh, Urwerk getting involved in this one, they definitely have a different spin on how watches are produced. And it is nice seeing a little bit of their twist being put into this. And of course, thanks to uh, Robert Grubel and Stephen Forzee f- for continuing to fund this project, because really this this whole project is because of them. They're bearing the the primary burden of of the development and the training and everything like that. So it is nice to see them taking what they've they've gained and and putting some of it into this uh, foundation mm-hmm. yeah you can certainly see martin free's fingerprints all, all over the the design of this piece he's the the designer behind a lot of works models yeah. and then uh felix baumgartner being the the watch making half of, of that duo uh, i i really admire and appreciate uh his love of extremes Mm. In that he wholeheartedly embraces this this project and, and working with hand tools, and while at, at the same time having these very avant-garde pieces from Erwerk that are, are made with essentially the most cutting-edge technology you can get your hands on, whether that's using Liga-formed components or, or lasers to sculpt things, or even have, you know a, an atomic clock that is operating kind of like the the montre sympathique that the breguet made years ago where you'd have a, a master clock that you'd nest your pocket watch in and then the the master clock would resync the the pocket watch for you they've got a, a similar piece like that that they've they've debuted with the a giant suitcase that has an atomic clock in it that you can nest your watch in and then it will uh resync your your mechanical watch for you and then of course they've got things like the emc that effectively has a, a tiny machine built right into it uh, but I just uh, really respect uh, his his take on things and uh, the fact that that he is willing to and uh, very intentionally embraces both uh, the cutting edge and the old school way of doing things and applies them both where they are are most appropriately applied. One of the interesting features of this is their uh, balance wheel. They've decided not to go for a complete annular balance wheel like most uh, watches use. And they've got this sort of butterfly shape or maybe eight. How would you describe that? Looks like a bit of an odd shaped eight or a butterfly kind of wings. And uh, I'd be curious to find out how they, how well this performs and and if they, if they have any challenges when it comes to timing and things like that. Well, as long as it's poised right, it'll be 
just fine. I mean, it reminds me of the the balance wheel that Jeje uh, Lecoult debuted in their their Geophysique last year, as well. Uh, I believe De Bethune has a, a number of watches with uh, non-annular balance wheels as well. They're, they're certainly not the, the first to do it. No, uh, it is absolutely possible to to poise uh, an odd-looking shape like this so that it is perfectly balanced no matter what position it's in. The tricky part is being able to to change the moment of inertia for for timing purposes, but even that is a, a solvable problem. But yeah, it's it's a neat looking balance wheel for sure it's certainly striking when you see it in motion it it has a very distinct uh, visual sort of style because it isn't annular so it, it certainly catches your attention if you're used to looking at an annular style balance wheel and you look at this it it is uh it is quite remarkable compared to a sort of a normal annular wheel and for anyone who's wondering what we mean when we we say annular just basically it's a, a fancy way of saying a round shape and as far as this project uh, perpetuating and continuing on. Naissance du Montre 3, number three, has also been announced. It was being spearheaded by the Ferdinand Bertude company, and uh, they have agreed to essentially underwrite the, the third round of Naissance du Montre, and uh, they're projecting to be about five years that it's going to take uh, for their team to handcraft uh, another watch. And the only thing they, they've really let out about what uh, it's going to, to have as, as a feature is uh, that it will have a, a fusé chain of some sort. Uh, that would definitely be interesting if they would pass on the information about how they make that fusé chain, because that's something that's that's challenging these days to find any information on. Uh, there's some there's an interesting series of articles in the, in the BHI journal back in the say late 90s or early knots that uh, looks at the, the various punches and, and things that were used to to make these fusée chains and and how to make both the tools and the chains themselves uh, so if you're sincerely curious i may be able to to dig those up for you sometime or you can do a little search through the archives yeah yourself as well now being a, a bhi member well, it's funny because the BHI's uh, back catalog doesn't actually go back that far. Although if you're a member of the uh, Antiquarian Horological Society, they have digitized the BHI journals uh, going back much further than the BHI actually has. Uh, although there is a gap of around 10 years, I think in the middle, sort of near near 2000, there's a gap of around 10 years, maybe nine years. Uh, but if you um, if you're interested in getting back issues of the Horologicals Journal, which is the BHI's um, monthly magazine, in fact, I believe it's the longest running journal in the world. I don't think there's anything that that's been running longer than that. And uh, you can go right back to 1852, I think, is when they started publishing. And the Antiquarian Horological Society has, um, as part of their membership, you get access to the website and they have all of those on there so i do have them all i just haven't uh, unfortunately that's it's a bit difficult sometimes to search through them so i have to go back and, and dig into that a little bit yeah the the ahs is a, a valuable resource for anyone who is, is deep into horology and, and trying to to learn from history and to effectively develop your own things going forward because uh, it definitely helps to take 
lessons from the past as we we move towards the future and looking towards the future and in this vein of of handcrafted timepieces there were two awards given out over the past week or so as well one from uh, Walter uh, Lang or Lang and Zona and also from FP Jean so the first was the Walter Lang watchmaking excellence award this is an award that is given out to watchmaking students, so it's open to a number of schools from around the world, and each school nominates one student to participate each year, and they're all given a, a specific objective to achieve, and, and this year's objective was to have an audible indication from a watch. Uh, it could be having to do with time or other things, like the power reserve, which one of the, the applicants did do. And they were given a, a Unitas base movement to do this from. So, uh, you know, the trusty old 6497, they said, you still need to make a, a new escape wheel for there, Chris. <laughs> That's right. And uh, this year's winner uh, for the Walter Lang Award was Otto Peltola from the Finnish School of Watchmaking. And uh, he made... A unique take on chiming the time. So Otto, as you say, he's take he has a unique take on this uh, idea of acoustic indication. Uh, he comes from a family of musicians, and he's taken the standard quarter repeater, and he's chosen to create a different tone for each quarter. Not only are you getting an indication based on probably the number of strikes, but also the actual tone of the strikes. That will tell you which uh, which hour or which part of the, the hour it is. It's too bad that there are, on this uh, article, there are no audio files that go with this or video that goes with it. It'd be intriguing to he- see and hear what he's doing here, actually uh, hear it live. It's, of course, one of the problems with all these repeater movements is that it's great to see photos of them, but it would be lovely to be able to hear them. Mm-hmm. And this piece by Otto is, is certainly, well, I mean, you could wear it on your wrist, but it's definitely going to fail the, the cuff test as uh, all the gongs are, <laughs> are stacked and each gong having its own tone or each tone necessitating yeah. its own gong, rather. Uh, so this is more uh, a table piece. Uh, but the same goes for the, the two runner-ups as well, or honorable mentions. They're, they're quite large pieces. So if you have any familiarity with with how big the the unitas movements are and you see just how much more uh, space there is around these to accommodate the the added gongs and and bells and whatnot from uh, the other students uh, these are are sizable timepieces and uh, not not something you would easily wear on your wrist no the 6497 as it is is sort of pushing the limits of what you can comfortably wear even myself with larger wrists i i don't know that i would be comfortable wearing a 6497 without sort of trying to make a case that was just a little bit bigger than the movement but these are massive compared to that and yeah these are obviously show pieces and desk pieces there's no way that you would want to wear them although maybe as a as a little desk clock these would actually be quite nice mm-hmm yeah, the the piece from Linda Holswell from the the German school. Uh, it looks to me like the the radius on her finish piece is is more than double the radius of the the original movement. Yeah, that's it's very possible. It is it is massive, and it's taking. It looks like there's a bell in there that it's trying to uh, accommodate. So, as well mm-hmm. as other things. Yeah, that's it's a huge piece. Yeah, and that 
that particular piece uh, uses the the bell to indicate the power reserve. Hmm. I have to say, I do like what she's done with one of the one of the gears in here and the cutouts that she's uh, chosen to use. Uh, it looks like she's put her initials into the as a cutout in the the gear. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of people doing different things when they're crossing out wheels or when they're they're putting cutouts into things. I, I think that there's a time and a place for the sort of the standard and traditional methods and the the standard and traditional look that we've had for for crossing out wheels. But I, I'm always a big fan of seeing other people's sort of take on more modern ways of of doing that kind of thing. I think artistically it looks a little bit more interesting and and visually it's a it certainly makes your work stand out a little bit more. And the other honorable mention was Yutara Izuka from the Hiko Mizuno College of Jewelry in Tokyo, which is a, a watchmaking school we touched on back in episode four mm-hmm. of this show. On, on a particular episode was dedicated exclusively to, to watchmaking schools. And uh, he actually used a particular stone that is native to Japan uh, that is used to make the gongs uh, in his piece and it is struck by the hammers to, to create the sound. So uh, again, this would be a piece where it'd be interesting to actually hear it in action and, and not simply be, be limited to the photos. So I imagine eventually over time, uh, some videos will begin to trick out on YouTube and whatnot. And uh, if we do catch one of those, we'll be, be sure to link those in the show notes. Now the second competition at uh, SIHH, and this award was actually presented uh, there in the the halls of SIHH, is the Fijon Young Talent Award, and this has been running for a number of years now. I believe uh, it's, this is the the fourth year, and uh, if I recall correctly, this is the the second time that someone from Birmingham City University has taken home the prize. Uh, so this is a watchmaking school that uh, you are, are fairly well acquainted with. You just, just visited a couple months ago. Yeah, I had the chance to visit the uh, the watch school at Birmingham City University, and that was nice. Unfortunately, there were no students there at the time, although there were a few of the projects from last year's class actually on display in the lobby of the building. In fact, if you're in the Birmingham area and you have a chance to stop by Birmingham City University, you can go in and see what's on display there. So they've got jewelry and and clocks and watches and whatnot that students have worked on. Uh, they've often got various displays. There was also a display of jewelry from various alumni while I was there. Uh, so it's certainly worthwhile going in there and, and checking it out. But uh, I may see, I'm going to be back in, in May. I, I have some free time for that week in Birmingham while I'm there. And so I may see about stopping by with uh, some students there and maybe chat with the the people running the program a little bit more and be able to hang out a bit and see what they're up to. It's nice to see students from that program doing so well. And as you say, there have been a few of them now who've won uh, considerable prizes from uh, the industry, which is nice to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the previous winner from Birmingham was Anna Rose Kirk back in 2016. And her clock is actually now on exhibition at the London Science Museum. Yeah, that her her work was impressive. Her, that clock was uh, was remarkable. The way that she built that and and what it was able to show off. And next time you're in Birmingham, uh, you may actually be able to 
to meet with Tyler John Davies, who took home this year's Young Talent Prize because he actually runs his own restoration workshop right there on Birmingham's Jewelry Quarter. And uh, he intends to continue making at least one clock per year. Oh, it's great to hear. Yeah, it's it's nice to see that that he's got a viable business running in Birmingham and and also that he's uh, going to continue making them as well because uh, obviously a lot of watchmakers, they need to keep repairing watches and clocks to be able to pay the bills. But uh, a lot of them end up giving up making their own pieces just because it's too time-consuming. So it's nice to hear that he's uh, going to continue on with that. Mm-hmm. Jean himself seemed uh, particularly chuffed and, and happy with it, with this young fellow, and I'm sure that he had plenty of wisdom to to pass along during the time that they were able to share together there at uh, SIHH. And last year's winner of the, the Young Talent competition was Remy Cools, and uh, he was featured in a piece in the New York Times this past week alongside Recep Recepi and a number of other, of other young watchmakers uh, in a piece uh, that was titled the, the New Watchmaking Kids on the Block, which is a decent read and, and a nice overview of uh, a lot of the, the young and up-and-coming talents. So we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, speaking of Francois-Paul Jouan, He's just brought out a new tourbillon as well to add to his collection. This one's a little bit different. He's got a vertical tourbillon in his case, which is a bit surprising because that limits the size of your tourbillon significantly without making it ridiculously large on the wrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's certainly a, more of a balance needing to, to be had there. So you end up with both a, a thicker case and a, a much smaller tourbillon carriage. Yeah, and then from a design point of view, this is also a nice watch. I, I've always been a big fan of Jean's design sense and his style. I like the choice of metals that he's that he's used. His uh, rose gold that he has here it looks uh, looks really nice, and uh, his movement design is fabulous. I, I've always been a big fan of that. I like the way that he's chosen to use some milgrain around his crown. It's a, a unique feature, and I. I not enough people in the watch world use milgrain uh, textures in their pieces. It's something that's being used quite a bit in the jewelry world and has been used for many, many years in the jewelry world, but it's never seemed to make much of an appearance in the watch world. So it is nice to see little details like that. It's nice to see him paying attention to the color of his rose gold. Again, a lot of people make rose gold things and the, the color is not very nice. Uh, he's done a, a remarkable job on that, and and uh, he's created quite a quite a nice looking watch from a design point of view as well. Yeah, it's worth noting too that his movements are are also made of solid gold, uh, which is a another selling point of his pieces. So most most watch manufacturers will be using brass for their yeah. bridges, and then rhodium plating it or, or gold plating it. But uh, he's using solid gold for all of the bridges in the watch, and as you noted, a very nice alloy of gold in, in terms of the, the color and the level to which it can be finished as well yeah as you say he is making these out of these bridges out of precious metal as well which is great i like to see that if somebody's putting the time and effort into making a watch like this and and making it to this level it is nice to see it in a material that is not going to tarnish over time and is going to going to hold up to the corrosion much better than some of the brasses 
even though they are being plated. Uh, plating is not uh, going to prevent it from tarnishing in the long term. And it is nice to see that he's using a precious metal for his bridges as well. And I, I hate to admit this, and I blame Grubel Forzi, and I, I'm not particularly a fan of uh, just how they they have taken their relief engraving. And, and JLC had it on a, a couple of pieces uh, this year uh, as well. Uh, but this is the, the first time where I was taking a close look at a, a movement, and uh, the, the engraving felt a little dated for me on the jaune, having it uh, engraved into the metal as opposed to having all the metal around it shaved down. Um, but I, I don't think that would have been a good look for the, this particular watcher or for a number of other watches either. Uh, but there is, is something to be said for just the uh, extent of, of machining that's required to do the, the relief or embossed engraving that uh, you're seeing now on on pieces from Grubel Forzi and Jeje Lacoute. I do actually like the way that uh, Dufour does his, where he he will machine out a pocket and then put a, a little plate inside of it instead. I think that's an, an mm-hmm. interesting way of creating a little bit more visual texture as well as preventing a lot of extra work when it comes to machining that bridge, which you've just spent an inordinate amount of time uh, making and you know making accurately and now you can potentially destroy with uh, some errant engraving i like the idea of having a little plate that you add in afterwards it, it uh, adds a little bit more a little bit more visual texture plus it uh, it gives you the chance to put in some contrasting metals as well to uh, add a little bit more texture to it that way and then uh, a lot less risk of damaging or destroying a movement which frankly is uh or a, a part of your movement which which could uh take a significant amount of time to rebuild if necessary mm-hmm. that's an excellent counterpoint i, I agree with you on that and and carrie votilainen goes the same route with with his engraving yeah. on his movements and uh, you actually have the opportunity to do that with the movements you're using in your watches mm-hmm. they, they come ready to have those sorts of plates pop right in there absolutely yeah the the uh, turn of movements that i'm using around the perimeter of the movement itself there are a number of small plates sort of arcs that you can remove and uh, i believe one of them is already engraved with uh, swiss made in it but then there's also plenty of room on some of the others to be able to put things like serial numbers and uh, and your own brand name or whatever in there so it is nice to have those options and to uh, give you a, a little bit more flexibility without cutting into the the actual movement itself and I appreciate that you brought up the mill grain as well, because that is a feature of Jean's pieces that I have long admired. Mm. And I'm, I don't actually know how that effect is achieved. That's something you are probably better acquainted with. Would that be an ornamental engine that would turn something like that? Or how is that effect achieved? I don't know. Should I should I share the secret? Should I share the magic behind oh, that? Come on. Come on. You, you can share. Come on. <laughs> just Just between you and me? Milgrain work is very similar to knurling work that's being done on a lathe. Uh, and knurling work, if you pick up especially a tool, a machine tool, you'll often see these fine diamond patterns in the work itself, and it provides extra grip in a tool. In the case of this, it's, again, going to provide you a little bit of extra grip. And this rope-like pattern that's there is formed in a similar way to how those diamonds are knurled. 
and it uses a roller and you're using unlike other techniques in turning where you're cutting material away in knurling or in mill grain operations you're displacing the metal so you're going to spin the piece in the lathe and you're going to push a textured roller up against it and as you push up against it it's going to displace that that metal underneath it and it's going to the metal is going to flow out and form in this form this rope like texture that you see here you also because you're you're displacing material you will also end up with extra material that doesn't look very good so you have to go in afterwards and sort of cut it a little bit and and clean it up but it's a a very nice technique it's traditionally in jewelry it's being used on stone settings if you have a bezel set around a stone you would take a mill grain tool and you would actually roll it around the top of that bezel and that way instead of having a flat bezel or just a, a pure rounded bezel you'll actually create a nice texture that goes around that that's a little bit different than what you'll see uh, just through a standard bezel so th this is being done on a lathe that's going to be done with a special forming tool and uh, it is nice to see because it's as i said there's unfortunately not a lot of not a lot of watchmakers are using this and it's something that i've considered using on some of my watch designs uh, i hadn't thought about using it on the crown although it uh, it would it certainly looks good on the crown uh, but i've certainly thought about using it on the uh, the front case of the watch to give a little bit of interesting texture around the crystal and uh, sort of do some do some of that kind of work and i think if you want to see some other work that's being done like this you'll find it on some of the brigade style cases uh, obviously from brigade themselves and from other people who are mimicking those cases you'll often see sort of edge bands that have been done with mill grain techniques to distinguish between let's say the the front bezel of a watch and the center band itself uh, they'll maybe put a little bit of mill grain around that's the uh, proud edge of the the top of the case and uh, that helps distinguish it a little bit and it also obviously puts a little bit of interesting texture in there well thank you for the enlightenment you're welcome Something a little more accessible from Zsa Lacute that uh, I know you were admiring is their Master Ultra Thin Moon. So, what is it about this piece that you liked? Well, we've we've of course discussed enamel work quite a bit, and enamel is something that I have a bit of a soft spot for. In fact, my paper for the Santa Fe Symposium next year is uh, probably going to be uh, experimenting with some enamel work. And uh, this is the only watch I saw this year with an enamel dial that really jumped out at me. And uh, that's saying something because, uh, of course, there are some watches from uh, Kari that have enamel dials on them. But um, this is the only one that really sort of uh, struck me as being a, uh, an attractive enamel dial and, a, and an attractive use of enamel. Uh, so that's that's what really jumped out at me in this particular one. Yeah, it is a, a beautiful piece. and. that? you ever had a chance to put on one of their, their ultra-thin pieces? No, I haven't. I find they have a, a very nice wrist presence, very comfortable. Hmm. And uh, f for me personally, uh, anything under 38 millimeters is, is just fine. I could maybe get away with a 40, hmm. uh, but anything much bigger than that is a no-go for me. But I think you would be able to pull off just about uh, any of those pieces just fine yeah. from them. 
Yeah, the, it is a nice. Uh, it does have a nice balance to it in terms of the visual balance. I, I do also like that it's a moon phase. I, I've got a bit of a soft spot for moon phase dials as well. This is, uh, I think, overall, this is a really nice watch. What they've done with it, it's uh, a little bit understated. It doesn't uh, doesn't scream that it's an enamel dial, but it's uh, it certainly will uh, will attract a little bit of attention amongst people who actually know what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And the the subdial for the date on this piece has that relief that I, I was referring to mm-hmm. earlier uh, on the the Grubel Frozies uh, and whatnot, and uh, that it's very well executed mm. yeah, too. This, this and is excellent. to be able to get those those inner corners cut, some serious machining going on there. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how they're doing that. That's a remarkable piece that they've uh, they've been managed they've managed to uh, machine there. I mean, in this day and age, uh, I think the lazy approach would be to to laser ablate that, or to uh, EDM it. One of the two. Mm-hmm. That'd be. Is a Dysync EDM. All right, that's a a good point. I hadn't thought about that. It'd certainly be a quicker way to do it, because uh, laser ablation still takes a, a fair bit of time to to take away that much material. Yeah, and and quick is relative in that case, because EDM is not going to be fast by any means. But it's going to be, uh, it might be, might be able to do it. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what they were doing. I, I doubt that they're machining it with uh, a spinning cutter. Uh, certainly, the texture that it's left on the background suggests to me that it's probably a laser or potentially hand hammered, which even <laughs> more impressive. But I, I don't think, like, even at the the price point that that is sitting at, I, I doubt that they would have mm. uh, hand reliefed that. Now, a piece that had stood out to you last year was. Uh, Cartier's redesign of the Santos, mm-hmm. and it uh, sounds like they were listening to to last episode. Heard about your your new Apple Watch? Yeah, and, with my uh, DLC coding. <laughs> they did, they decided to make a a new Santos just for you. Yeah, the new Santos with the DLC is interesting. I I'm not a big fan of leather straps on these Santoses. I find they look a little bit. I think the strap is a little bit anemic in terms of its width on the, considering the sort of the visual heft of the the Santos itself the the case. Uh they also have some low end ones that they've brought out some uh quartz versions and, and I find they have the same kind of problem. I I think I'd like to see a uh, a bracelet on this as opposed to a leather strap. Uh but this is quite a nice look that they've got for it. It's a certainly a little bit low key compared to the other ones. Although in this particular one, they've also gone with a skeletonized dial and movement, uh, which is uh, they've done a, a quite a remarkable job on. They've they've made a an interesting skeletonized dial that uh, that actually stands out quite a bit, and it's uh, it's not just they haven't just gone and skeletonized it for skeletonization's sake. They've actually done a, a good job of designing something that looks interesting and, and isn't just sort of randomly cutting out spaces where they could. Mm-hmm. It certainly stands out at night more than other renditions of, of this mm-hmm. particular flavor of skeletonization that they've been doing with the, the Santos, which I have to admit is is one of my, my favorite takes on a skeletonized movement because they actually end up integrating uh, the dial into the skeletonization and uh, very cleverly hide in in some iterations, not so much in this iteration, very cleverly hide the stem for the crown in the the Roman numeral three coming up on the the side there. Uh, but the reason that stands out 
so much more on the the Santo Skelet Noctambul is because the entire skeletonized dial portion is coated in superluminova. So this thing lights up like a light bug at night. Yeah, it looks quite impressive. And I think with that DLC coating, it would be uh, quite a remarkable look on that. I'd love to see one of these in person. I, I think this, this would be quite a striking watch. And if your your new link bracelet doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't quite play well with your your, your Apple Watch, uh, you just have to, to retrofit it to the Santos, and then you'll you'll have your way. No leather strap, DLC on DLC. Yeah, maybe they need to contact Apple about uh, about making some uh, some bracelets. I know Apple's talking about uh, stopping production of their link bracelets, but maybe uh, they could start making them for Cartier because at this price tag, they could certainly justify the the cost of those, uh, the machining on those blink bracelets. Now, the quick release system that uh, Cartier has on their watch is actually quite impressive as well. I don't know if, have you ever seen uh, how that operates on their pieces? No, I haven't. Uh, so, I mean, I find it a little troublesome sometimes getting a, a fingernail in there on the, the release button on the Apple watch. And then you, you slide it out through the side on the, the Cartier's. Uh, it's a, a simpler catch to get your, your finger down in. And then the bracelet or the strap slides out through the back and uh it's quite an effective design the only downside is the same sort of downside you have with anything that has open spaces as we were alluding to earlier with the the code 1159 from ap and um, it's going to be dirt and grime getting all caught up in the lugs there on any lugs on any watch if there's any sort of gap anywhere over time you get a a buildup of of dirt and material and uh that, that can affect how how easily you you can release the system but uh the apple watch is not immune to this either i've certainly come across a number of pieces now where it's been difficult or people have had trouble getting the either the the bracelet or strap to release from the case or getting one of the links to release from the link bracelet because of dirt and debris that gets caught in there so you end up having to give it a quick ultrasonic or whatnot to to loosen things up or, or free things and then you're able to to get it out but uh it hasn't actually been a problem with any of the the Cartiers I've handled yet, but they're they're certainly not free from uh, any dirt and and buildup of uh, less than than pleasant gunk that uh, I end up having to clean out of there for clients. So one of the watches that did really catch my attention, mostly because I wasn't sure at first with what they were doing and how they were doing it, uh, is this uh, Hermes and Pegasus flies on the moon. This is part of a collection they've had over the last few years. Uh, Actually, more than that, I think this is the, last year was the 40th anniversary of this collection. And this is a striking watch because it's a a moon phase watch, which as I've mentioned, I'm I'm a big fan of the moon phase styles. But this one has a bit of a different take on how to expose and hide the moons uh, on the dial. Uh, most of them, most moon phase dials, you have a dial with the moon itself on it, and it that dial spins around to reveal and hide the moon. But in this case, the moon dial itself is static, and it's the two sub-dials which carry the time and the, the date, which are actually moving around in a circular manner and hiding and exposing the the moon disks and i wasn't sure at first what they were doing and if they were actually turning those two sub dials around but from the photos i've seen 
of the press who've actually had a chance to wear this watch. So not just the the marketing photos from Hermes, but the actual sort of on-the-wrist photos that journalists have been posting. It does look like they are, in fact, moving those two subdials around and spinning them around so that they will completely cover the the disc that's in the back. So this, this is a remarkable watch visually, but it's also a remarkable watch technically in terms of how they're doing it and what they're pulling off. Yeah, the first time that I, I saw it, and actually I have to admit, even the second and third time I took a look at it, I was a little bit flummoxed as to how exactly they were, were pulling this up. But as I thought about it a little more, it's actually, uh, I shouldn't say trivial, because uh, what they've done here is is rather remarkable and certainly some out-of-the-box thinking. I've also got to say, the, the Aventurine dial, the, the base underneath the the moon's I hadn't seen much much play as far as dials go. Lang and Zona had a really nice one they released last year at SIHH, but just quite a number of manufacturers seem to uh, be be bringing out the Aventuring since then. Uh, I mean, the AP Code eleven fifty nine they they had one. Lang and Zona had some more this year, and then of course we've got the the Omaze here uh, and a number of others uh, that I saw uh, over the course of SIHH that. Uh, slipping my mind at the moment, but Aventuring was was definitely strong in terms of its presence here at the fair. And the one certainly more remarkable bit uh, about this configuration that certainly makes it more challenging and far less trivial to execute on is the, the actual moving of the dials uh, around the piece, mm-hmm. similar to, uh, to what Resonance has done with their pieces. Uh, that That's a little trickier to play out but mm. uh, actually having all the the gears necessary to drive the hands is, is certainly a far more trivial aspect than i initially thought the first time i looked at it it is really tricky to to get a, a sense of what this watch is doing uh, without seeing a time lapse of it in action the press photos really don't do it justice yeah uh, this this is something that it took me a little bit of thinking and a little bit of digging to find enough photos to confirm that it is doing what I thought it was doing, where the, the subdials are spinning. And as you say, the the press photos that they've created really don't do this justice. They do need to put out a uh, a good time lapse of this watch in, in action because it is really a remarkable piece and they should be showing it off. It's, it is a uh, it is spectacular what it's doing. And it would be nice because it would be rather subtle in actual use. Because, of course, the the dial, let's say you take the the time dial, it's going to take 59 days for that to move around and return back to its original position. So it's not as if this is spinning around through the course of a day. It really is something that's going to change subtly as you wear it over the course of, of a few months. So yeah, I, I would love to see this watch in action. I do love the dial options they've got um, on top of the the one that you talked about. They've also got a great uh, meteorite dial, which I think, honestly, if I were going to go for this watch, I think I'd go for the meteorite one. I, I love the look of that. I think it's um, the black on meteorite is um, it's a really nice look. And uh, yeah, this is overall, I'm, I am super impressed with this watch uh, visually and technically. I think they've done a great job of it. And uh, it is uh, it is a remarkable piece. 
once journalists actually get their hands on these watches and they start playing with them in person, we'll often see video of this kind of work in action. And I think we haven't seen it here because obviously, unless you film it for weeks at a time, you're not going to see any actual motion without doing an adjustment of the that lunar phase. So maybe we'll see somebody who was uh, enterprising enough to uh, do an adjustment of the lunar phase with uh, with their camera pointing at it so we can actually see what it looks like. But uh, I, think it, I think we really need Hermes to come out and uh, produce a video of this because I would love to see it. I think it would look spectacular. Unfortunately, it's probably a little out of my price range, but I would love to see this in action. Yeah, another piece that, that suffers from a, a similar plight in terms of journalists being able to take the time necessary to actually a- allow the benefits of, of the watch to, to play out is uh, Vacheron Constantine's twin beat that they announced uh, at SIHH. And uh, I, I take some issue with the the marketing on this piece. Yeah, uh, the marketing is horrible. As well, I think they, they could have done a much better job with the name because what what they've done here with the, the twin beat, which is a, a perpetual calendar that solves a, a genuine problem that people have with perpetual calendars, and that is that when you have to go and reset it, it can be quite difficult to do properly, and it's very easy for clients to to do damage to to a piece unless there are the appropriate safeties put in, which not every brand does. I mean, I adjust perpetual calendars for clients quite frequently because it's not something they want to to risk doing themselves. I mean, just uh, the week before last, I had a client come in and, and ask me to to adjust at the beginning of the month for him, and uh, it, it took me. A, a good eight to ten minutes to to run through the paces and, and to do it all, and I can see why you know, they wouldn't want to do it themselves. Uh, but what Vacheron has done here with the the twin beat, and really it should have been called something like the the ultra reserve or the the duo power or something like that, to to better articulate exactly what it's doing. Because twin beat's a very technical approach to to the marketing. But essentially what you have are two balance wheels in the watch and you as the the wearer can switch the gear train of the watch to to run at, at a lower or slower pace that multiplies the the power reserve of the watch. So if you're as you're wearing the watch you can have a, a regular 5 hertz sort of beat going on. But then when you go to put it down for a week or two weeks or put it away in the safe for a little bit, you can flip a switch. It'll switch over to another balance wheel that is running far slower. I believe it's 1.2 hertz. Mm -hmm. And that gives you uh, an effective power reserve of 65 days. So you don't have to worry about resetting the calendar when you come back to it. It's a perpetual calendar. It's going to take care of itself. And you're not going to have to worry about setting it for 100 years should you be so lucky to live that long provided that it keeps running. And this is, you know, a genuine problem with this this particular piece that they, they have solved in a very ingenious way that I'm actually surprised I haven't seen done before. Yeah, this is a remarkable piece. And as you say, the the switchover, obviously with the, the five hertz, you're getting more accuracy out of it, but you're going through the power reserve faster. With the 1.2 hertz, you're losing a little bit of accuracy but if it's sitting in the safe, you're probably less concerned about that. You can adjust, you know, if you're losing a couple of minutes over, let's say, a month, a month and a half that it's sitting in a safe, you can easily adjust the time to 
you know, to compensate for the couple of minutes maybe that you've lost. But being able to switch it over and get that sort of low power mode, if you will, that's a, a remarkable piece. I, I'm not a big fan of the the design of the dial. I think they uh, I think they went a little too busy on this dial. But the technical side of this and why they've done this, uh, it's just remarkable that this is uh, that they've done this like this. And as you say, I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen this before from somebody else. I think that wraps it up for us uh, for SIHH this year. Do you have any closing thoughts or other things you want to touch on? I wish I could afford more of these watches. And uh, maybe it's a good thing that I can't afford more of these watches because I suspect I would have a lot more of them in my safe if I had uh, had the money for them. Not as many as previous years, but there's still a couple of nice watches in here that um, I hope uh, some people buy and I hope they enjoy them. But at the very least, it's nice to see what people are doing and that's why I always like these shows. It's um, it's always a nice chance to see the new work that's coming out and where the where the design trends are going. And I expect to see you on stage announcing Naissance d'une Montre for next year. I would love to. You know, if Stephen and Robert want to get in touch, I'm happy to uh, talk to them about becoming a part of that group. I, I suspect that I'm not their target uh, for makers, but uh, yeah, it would be. I'd love to be involved in that project at some point. And as I said, I really hope that. We get to see more video and more information coming out of those projects. I think that would be uh, uh, an, an amazing legacy to be able to pass on that knowledge of uh, of these makers and the traditional skills they've got. Well, you've certainly got the chops in the engine turning department. Well, maybe maybe we could tag team it like Dominic and Serrano. <laughs> I'm I'm down for that. So Stephen and Robert, get in, get in touch when you've got a chance. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>